You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Greg Wilson, a programmer who spends more time teaching programming than writing code these days, and a software engineering manager for a biotech startup in Toronto. We talk about different types of beginner programmers and how they learn most effectively, what counterintuitive aspects of programming languages they tend to find more or less difficult to learn, and about the surprising relationship between software architecture and industrial design. And now, programming and industrial design. Greg, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. So as I understand it, you've spent a good amount of time teaching beginners programming. And one of the things I'm always curious about is what people's experiences are like doing that, because I've taught experienced programmers, other languages and various concepts about things, but I've never taught somebody who's sort of new to programming how to program for the first time. So I'm curious, what's your experience been like doing that? Sure. So the first thing we have to do is we have to distinguish between true beginners and false beginners. So if you've never actually done something before, you're a real beginner, but a true beginner. Just as an example, 30 years ago, I was reasonably fluent in French, but that was 30 years ago. If you were to test me right now, I would probably test out at about a grade eight level. But if I start relearning it, I will relearn it much faster than somebody would learn it for the first time. Turns out human brains are actually very bad at forgetting. The knowledge doesn't go away. We just lose the ability to access it. It's still there, but the pointers have gone rusty. So if you're teaching somebody who, for example, has learned to program in MATLAB, and now they're learning Python, that's a completely different problem from teaching somebody who's only ever used Excel to do calculations. The person who's coming in from MATLAB has a mental model. They have a rough understanding of how this works, they just don't have the content knowledge. The person who's never done calculations before or has only ever used spreadsheets doesn't have a mental model to draw on. So you've got to build that first before you can start putting in content knowledge. And one of the mistakes that programmers often make, the people who are expert in any domain often make, is they think their job is to teach content, but it's not. With a true beginner, your job is to help them build a mental model. And one analogy that's often used, do you remember making ball and stick models of molecules in like high school chemistry class? I don't think we actually did that in my high school chemistry class. But you've seen I, chemistry, I don't right? I, Water is, yeah, I'm familiar you know, with the idea. Yeah. There's, there's a little ball here that's an oxygen atom, and there's a couple of sticks, and there's a couple other balls that are hydrogen atoms. Right. Okay, it's a lie. Everything I just told you is a lie. Atoms are not hard balls with holes in them. Molecular bonds are not bendy rubber sticks, but it's a useful mental model. You can explain most of what most people need to know most of the time about chemistry in terms of balls and sticks. So the first thing you do as an instructor is say, here's how atoms work. And then you explain a lot of the content knowledge, like why does burning methane produce carbon dioxide and water. Well, take these two apart, put them back together. You've got two new molecules and one bond left over. That's the energy that was released when you burned the molecule. Woohoo, it makes perfect sense. You don't start with electron shells in quantum chemistry. So when we're teaching beginners programming, we now have over 20 years of really solid research that proves that tools like Scratch where you're programming by assembling blocks and clicking blocks together are the most effective way to do it because people can see the control flow and because it removes what Samantha Harishwar calls unessential weirdness. A lot of the frustration people have when they're learning to program 
isn't about programming. It's about the damn semicolons. <laughs> it's about the difference between round parens and square parens. Neil Brown and others have a long-running study in the UK where they've actually been mining data from novices who are learning to program in Java. And it turns out that one of the three most common mistakes is mixing up the different kinds of parentheses because it doesn't matter in handwritten work, but it really does matter to a computer, right? So tools like Scratch eliminate all of that syntax weirdness because you can only click blocks together in ways that actually run. You can't make a syntax mistake. You can only make an interesting mistake where your algorithm's wrong. So you can focus on learning how programs work. What does it mean to have a conditional where there's only an if but not an else? What does it mean to say and and or? Because those words mean different things in programs than they do in everyday English. What does it mean to update a variable, right? So people can learn that and then move on to the textual languages that you and I use. And they will learn to program faster than if they start with the textual languages. And this is true for programmers of all ages. But we tend to look down on block-based tools like Scratch because they're too simple. They look like they're for kids, Uh right? And so programmers like you and I tend to have a bias against these. So we want to jump straight into doing it the hard way. Like we did. (laughs) Everyone else needs to. (laughs) Sure, right? I suffered through this, so you should have to as well. Yeah, everybody knows that's the best way to teach. (laughs) suffering. (laughs) Well, I don't know that very many people would actually say that out loud these days, but one of the things that's tremendously frustrating to anybody who's trying to teach programming is the number of places where there isn't something like Scratch to serve as a ramp, where people have to climb a cliff. For example, Git is the single worst piece of software from a teaching point of view that I've ever encountered. And I say that as somebody who has taught Emacs. (laughs) There was a study done by uh, Sergio Perez de Rosa and Daniel Jackson at MIT about 10 years ago, where they compared the mental models of proficient Git users with how Git actually works. And even people who were comfortable doing complicated merges every single day had a mental model that conflicted with how Git actually works. And every conflict between how you think it's going to work and how it actually works is, you you asked me not to swear, so I'm not going to swear, but it's a W2F moment. It's a (laughs) what the hell is going on here moment, right? Git's interface is awful. And most of it is inessential weirdness. And Mercurial is proof of that. Similarly, are you familiar with Andy Steffik's work? Oh, yes. Okay. So Stefik did a study that showed that for novices to learn to recognize grammatically correct from grammatically incorrect Perl programs was as hard as learning to recognize a randomly generated programming language. Right. Or the syntax, like the keywords are like randomly generated ASCII characters. Yeah. They stayed up one Saturday night rolling Dungeons and Dragons dice to pick random ASCII tokens for their programming language. And everybody laughs, obviously, Perl. It turns out that all of the curly brace languages are as hard as a randomly generated language, but Perl and Ruby are provably easier 
And the language that Stefik's been building called Quorum is easier still because they A-B test every new piece of syntax before it goes into the language. Now, that's not going to solve all of the problems. You can have horrible semantics and a clean syntax, but at least there's one less thing for novices to trip over. Now, you're involved in creating a new programming language right now. True. And the first time we spoke, I asked, how are you deciding on syntax? And you kind of ducked my question. So I'm going to ask you again, <laughs> when it comes to designing the syntax, how are you doing the usability testing to make sure that if something's hard, it's hard because it's intrinsically hard rather than English spelling, which makes everything harder? Yeah, that's a great question. So let's dig into that. A couple of thoughts. One is Quorum, the language that Stefik and his other researchers are working on, is designed to optimize for, well, okay, slight tangent to within the tangent. They're designing to optimize for beginner like learnability and usability. They're not targeting like professional users at all. You mentioned like true beginners versus false beginners. Even beyond like true versus false beginners, there's also a question of what's someone's prior experience. So a thing that is more important to me with my goals for Rock, which is to get it adopted in industry, it's more important to me, what do people who already, for better or for worse, are used to existing programming languages, what's their experience like? That's more important to me than what's somebody's experience who has never done any programming, just because that's what I'm optimizing for. So that's one thought. Second thought is... Quorum as a language, I actually went back through and looked at the latest Quorum stuff when I was like thinking about rock syntax to see if there was any stuff that seemed like it would be a good sort of starting point. And one of the things that's inescapable to notice is like, this is a language that evolved from Java, 100%. It's very, very, very clear. Whereas rock is not. Rock is a language that evolved from like, I mean, originally like Robin Milner's ML and then, you know, by way of Elm, by way of standard ML and, and with, with some Haskell influences in there along the way. And so because of that, a lot of the things don't necessarily apply directly, or I'm not sure how much they would apply. So to directly answer your question of like, how are we testing or like, how are we doing experimentation? It's very ad hoc. It's very like asking beginners for feedback. What do they find confusing? We have an active Zulip chat where people, there's a whole beginners channel. People post when they're confused about things. And I keep an eye on that and notice when people don't find something that should be there or they express confusion about something or they ask a question that reveals that they must be confused about something that I would have hoped they would have picked up on. But keep in mind that this is also a very biased sample. Like this is a very new programming language. It's it's not like as easy to get set up. You can't even like homebrew install it on a Mac, like which is something that everybody kind of expects for established programming languages. So even installing it is a little bit more difficult than your average programming language, even for an experienced user, because you have to download it and put it on your path and, and, and so forth. So we're already selecting for, like among the people we get feedback for, we're not necessarily intentionally, but we're selecting for people who have a certain level of proficiency with programming in general, even more than just like my actual goal of selecting for that. Having said that, I do also care about like what is the experience of a brand new user but I'll give you an example off the top of my head of something that Quorum does that I'm choosing not to do. So in Quorum, at least the last time I checked, there was a decision to use instead of the traditional like, you know, print line or something like that to describe the action of printing to standard output. They use the term output and then reading from standard in is used as uh, input. So I totally buy that for a beginner, 
those are the least confusing words. Like print, it's like, yeah, I don't have a printer. I don't know. Can I use this command? You know, it makes sense why people would find that confusing. And also, I think it's a little bit funny. Uh, I mean, I imagine, I don't know if this is true or not, but maybe if I were teaching beginners, which I've never done, like actual true beginners to programming, maybe I'd go into a little bit of a history lesson of like, well, it actually, you didn't used to have monitors. <laughs> Back in those days, it probably made a lot of sense to choose the word print because it's like, well, yeah, I want to print to the teletype. But these days, yeah, it makes more sense probably to a beginner to think in terms of input and output. The challenge that I have with choosing that for a language like Rock would be that input and output in a professional setting are much more general than that. And so actually, like the term that we do use is we actually say like standard out dot line, because it's you're writing a line to standard out. And although I'm quite sure that that's harder for a beginner than input and output, again, that's not, you know, who I'm optimizing for. But having said that, I mean, another part of your question was sort of about methodology. And like I said, it's it's very ad hoc. I would love to, I mean, if somebody wanted to offer me and this, you know, if anyone listening <laughs> wants, wants to do this, I'd be happy to help facilitate it, wants to do an experiment of like, you know, having a, a room full of true beginners or um, any beginners do a set of like rock exercises, like teach them, see how it goes and get feedback that way. That would be great. I would love that. I actually have a suggestion for you. So if I take a look at programmers, say 25 year olds in North America or Western Europe, if they're using a strongly typed language, what language are they using? I'm guessing most likely Java. Yeah. C++? I'm willing to bet it's most likely TypeScript rather than Java. Hmm. Is that already true today? I mean... They don't teach Java as a first language in most schools any longer. They teach TypeScript? No, but everybody who's getting into web dev okay. is hitting TypeScript head on. So... Sure. They may have learned a little bit of JavaScript in a web programming class in university. They certainly weren't taught server-side JavaScript as a first language. But when they hit industry, it's pretty inescapable. You don't go very far before you bump into TypeScript because you're being asked to build React, and that's what all the cool kids are doing. We're in the process at my job of converting the last bits of untyped JavaScript into TypeScript because it just works better. Yeah. I feel I don't have to argue the benefits of strong typing too. <laughs> not on board. So the interesting audience, I think, for Rock isn't how comprehensible is it to a true beginner. The interesting audience is how comprehensible is it to somebody who taught themselves TypeScript so that they could use React? Because there's a lot of those people. They're going to be false beginners. They already understand loops and structures and variables. They have a colloquial understanding rather than a theoretical understanding of typing. They've learned by trial and error how generics work and they think they're pretty cool, but it's, I use this rather than somebody sat down and explained the theory behind it. Yeah. Okay. So how appealing is rock going to be to that audience? Right? Yeah. I appeal, I would say is a different question from how easy is it to learn in the sense that, right. There's like selling points are, are, there's overlap for sure, but they're okay, also comprehensible rather than appealing. Sure. Right? Yeah. And the other advantage is there are a lot of JavaScript conferences, JavaScript meetups. There are a lot of places where you could go and get that room full of people who already have an idea of not just what typing is, but what benefits it brings because they have seen it, gave them from dumb errors. So what you're presenting is okay, what if we took that further? What if we did more of that, but you weren't allowed to update your structures in place? It's like, oh, okay, I kind of get it. This is another Indo-European language rather than you teaching me Mandarin, for example, right? Like, like there's a mental model there. Well, so that 
particular example is something I'm extremely familiar with because of Elm. So before I started working on Rock, I mean, I have personally spent, and to you, this is a small number, but in the grand scheme of things, like compared to the average programmer, it's a large number. I've personally spent over 100 hours standing in person in front of a room full of people teaching them Elm as their first functional language, even though they already do JavaScript. So because of that, I have a lot of experience in what types of things that audience gets stuck on versus finds easy to pick up. And a lot of people are are sort of surprised when I tell them what the things are that people get stuck on. Maybe you'd be less surprised, but you mentioned the brackets thing. So one difference between like ML family, including element rock syntax and C style syntax is where the parentheses go in function calls. So in C style, they go immediately after the name of the function. You say like foo open paren. Whereas in element rock, by default, you don't need parentheses. However, you do need to use them to disambiguate. So if you have foo and then one of the arguments to foo is another function call, the nested function call needs parentheses around the whole thing or else you couldn't tell where the one function call begins and what ends. So I have seen beginners get tripped up on that all the time because I think largely just force of habit. It's like you're not used to putting the parens in that place <laughs> for nested function calls. Or maybe you don't realize that they need to be there. And so I always try to include an exercise early on where you have to do, like you're doing something very simple, but you have to do a nested function call just to get people, if they're going to trip over it, trip over it when they're doing something so simple that it's very easy to get unstuck. And of course, in the lesson before I explicitly tell them about this, but still, even though I say that, like still some people, once they actually get to the exercise, mess it up. So that's one thing. The second thing that always, I guess when I tell this to people who are, experienced functional programmers and who've used like Elm or Haskell or PureScript, some language or OCaml, F-sharp, some language that is in the like ML family lineage of programming languages. They're always surprised when I tell them this, but another thing that trips everybody up is currying. The fact that functions are curried. And in that family of languages, you really cannot avoid teaching beginners currying pretty early on because as soon as you have a function that takes more than one argument, the syntax for that involves, it looks like it has multiple return values. It's like it's got multiple return arrows in the type. And if you don't explain why that is, then people are like, I don't understand why is it this way. <laughs> and also, sometimes they run into it in the type error messages. Like if they make a mistake, sometimes the error message will just not make sense to them unless they've been taught about that functions are curried. And once you've gotten used to it, currying, it's like, oh, well, this is this is easy. This is no problem. But a lot of beginners get stuck on it. And also, even after I've explained it, I always got the sense that a good chunk of them, they sort of academically understood it. And like they, they followed each individual step that I was saying, but they really didn't have a good mental model of it. And they kind of ended up at the point of like, I'm going to take your word for it. I didn't hear you say anything that was logically inconsistent. So I believe you that this is what's going on under the hood. But I haven't really wrapped my head around it. So I'm just going to be like, got it. That's why the arrows are that way. Okay, whatever. I'm just going to move on with my life. That's actually one of the reasons that Rock does not have currying is that unlike basically all those other languages in that family, I intentionally removed it because in large part of this experience of teaching beginners and and just concluding myself, like, I don't think this adds that much. And uh, there are are non-obvious downsides to it, such as error message quality. Like if you have currying, you, you cannot have an error message that says, too few arguments provided to this function because that's always allowed. It's just, you'll get a, a type mismatch that looks kind of weird because anyway. So that's an example of not me doing experiments on Rock itself, but rather drawing on my experience from teaching a very similar language to sort of the target audience. Yep. And I wish there was more of that kind of conscious reflection on design in our field. And 
if I'm allowed to rant for a couple of minutes, which I assume I am. Cause yeah, Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. So we call ourselves software engineering, but after many discussions with my younger brother, I came to the conclusion that we'd borrowed the wrong metaphor in the 1960s. What we're doing has more in common with industrial design. Interesting. Okay. So what an industrial designer does is ask two questions plus one. The first one is, does this thing actually serve the purpose it was built for? You know, does the phone actually work? The second one is, is it aesthetically pleasing? Do you like the look and the feel? And the third one, the one that often gets overlooked, but is the heart of industrial design is, did we design it in a way that makes it easy to manufacture and maintain? Huh. Right? This is what, there was a whole generation pre and post the First World War. Raymond Lowy is probably the best known, but there are a bunch of others who were trying to get people to take mass production seriously from an aesthetic point of view. Like we forget this now, but prior to the 20s or 30s, you wouldn't find people taking mass-produced artifacts seriously from an aesthetic point of view because they were mass-produced, because it was seen as cheap. As opposed to like handmade, one-off. Absolutely. It was things like poster production instead of painting. It was radios and cars, which were new kinds of things, and therefore they were allowed to have new aesthetic standards were things that kind of broke that mold. So that gave people like Lowy and others, other contemporaries, the ability to come in and say, okay, we can make beautiful radios, not just radios that sound good, but radios that are physically beautiful and that are worth critiquing with the same kind of language and the same kind of concepts that we would use in art or architecture. And architecture was the analogy that they used over and over again. We have always looked at buildings as is it functional and is it beautiful? But the missing part and the part that, again, that generation and subsequent generations, the Eames and others have pushed really hard is, did we design it in a way that allows it to be built? Ikea is really, really good at that. And for all that we make jokes about Ikea, they have produced some really beautiful, affordable furniture. And one of the reasons we look down on it is it's affordable. If it's affordable, it can't be great. <laughs> yeah, that's totally that's a thing wrong. people do. But think about what we do. I don't do engineering. I actually trained as an engineer 40 years ago, right? I can't do the kind of math that every civil engineer on the planet has been doing for the last 150 years. And you don't either. Yeah. I can't do oh, I calculations, right? I don't have blueprints. Every attempt to get programmers to do the equivalent of blueprinting, uh, UML probably the most famous, has failed. On the other hand, you and I think a lot about the way we construct the software so that we can maintain it next week, next month, next year, so that we can deploy it. We think about the production process and the affordances that we're building in. So plug-in architecture, right? We build things so that I can decide next year to add some functionality and I don't have to recompile anything. I just have to put a file in a directory and it gets loaded up. Yeah. Right. So thinking about things like this was part of what led to a book that was published in 2007 called Beautiful Code. And it's still in print. I'd been teaching a class at the University of Toronto called Software Architecture. And after running it three times, I told the university to cancel it because we didn't have the raw material. There was a point where I had 12 books on my shelf with the words software architecture in the title. So round numbers, somewhere between four and 5,000 pages 
of which fewer than 50 talked about the actual architectures of actual pieces of software. <laughs> how, how does that happen? I mean, what, what, what were the rest of the pages about? Well, but it hasn't changed. Here we are literally two decades later, and it hasn't changed. What were the rest of the pages about? <laughs> how to elicit architectural requirements, design patterns in the abstract, UML, how to convey them, how to track them. But it's as if we were trying to teach architects the traditional kind who make buildings without ever showing them actual buildings. And that hasn't changed. So what I did with Beautiful Code was I spammed 300 programmers and said, can you please tell me what's the most beautiful piece of code you've ever seen? Write a chapter about it. Explain what makes it beautiful because we don't even have the vocabulary yet that people have when they're talking, for example, about the aesthetics of the latest iPhone. They've got a language and they've got a history they can draw on. And you and I can talk in general terms about elegant software, right? But we're not drawing on an aesthetic tradition nearly as rich as people who are talking about well-made chairs, never mind talking about well-made buildings, right? Because you need to have the hundreds or thousands of examples to build up a shared understanding of why is that porch better than the other porch? Well, here's a bunch of things I can wave my hands about, but I'm drawing on the fact that you've seen hundreds of porches and we've talked about them and about why that one might leak or this one is too crowded if we've got the whole family over or this one, there's not enough privacy because you can see right into the front room or the stairs are in the wrong place. A lot of this has to be learned by example, but that doesn't mean there isn't something solid there. There's just not a mathematical theory that we can use to do proofs. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think a related and interesting topic to me is how to figure out where to take good advice from. In other words, like where does good advice come from? And thinking about it from the perspective of software architecture, to me, the thing that makes sense as a heuristic is what are some code bases I've worked on where I was like, this is a really good code base to work in. I feel like I can add stuff easily. I can make changes easily. It runs fast. It's reliable. You know, all, all It's easy to deploy. All those characteristics that I think about. And then I think about, okay, how did it come to be this way? Was there one person who was largely responsible for it? Were there a couple of different people who had different perspectives, et cetera? And how do I translate that into, okay, this is something that I want to try to learn from and adopt as my practice? Contrast that with the typical way that people learn more about software architecture or, or anything is, like you said, there's a book on it, or there's a, a talk about it, or, or this or that. And if you look at, okay, well, where is that person coming from? Did they make a code base that I've worked in that was really great? Well, no, but I guess I'm kind of taking their word for it that th the result is really great. But I think oftentimes, it's very easy to listen to someone talk about something and not be sufficiently critical about, does this actually produce a really good outcome? So the architecture that comes immediately to mind as an example of, wow, has this led a lot of people to have a really bad experience? Or <laughs> some might argue a bad experience that they've convinced themselves is actually as great as they thought it was going to be, or, or is just, just, they just need to do it a little bit better and more, you know, authentically to make it really great. And that's the reason it's not as great as uh, they might hope is the microservices architecture. This is something that, I mean, a lot of people today have started to use the term microservice interchangeably with service. It's like, oh, you just, that's not a 
the word micro just always goes there. But I'm old enough to remember that like when the term microservices was introduced, it wasn't that long ago. It was like in the past decade. And before that, it was the, all the talk was about, well, you have this service, which is kind of an abstraction for like one or more servers all running the same code. Basically, that's, that's sort of the, the short version of it. And the idea was essentially that yeah, I mean, you did that when you had some very compelling specific reason to, quote, split off a service to do something like that. And microservices was the idea of like, forget this splitting off nonsense. Let's make as many services as possible and make them as small as possible or not as small as possible, but intentionally very small and as sort of like a first principles thing. And if I look back and say, who were the people who were saying that this was a good idea and how well did it work out for them? And I mean, I hadn't personally worked on those code bases, but to me, that's a cautionary tale. And I, I wish that, you know, if I had been at a company, I mean, I was fortunate enough that when that was all coming out, I was not working at a company that was had any interest in that. But supposing that I had, uh, at least based on <laughs> the experience reports I've heard from people and so on and so forth, let's assume that I would have concluded, wow, this is actually a terrible architecture. Nobody should do this, which is what I believe. <laughs> then how would I go back and look at the pitch for that and convince my past self of how to be sufficiently skeptical of that pitch so that I could look at it and reject it without having to go through the pain of actually implementing it and ending up with this disaster? Right. So I have an answer in the small and an answer in the large. The answer in the small is that you would go back and ask your younger self, okay, where have we moved the debugging pain to? You obviously know a lot about the ML family of languages. I was at the University of Edinburgh when Milner, Bristol, and Plotkin were, they were doing all of their work. And I remember a talk by Robin Milner in which he said, I'm paraphrasing because it's been several decades, that every useful programming system has a certain amount of grit. You can sweep it into the corners, but you cannot get it out of the room. Ah. There's some irreducible complexity. So what microservice architectures have done is say, we're going to move all of the pain into configuration. Each of your services is now simple enough to fit on four pages and it's easy to unit test, but good luck with your Kubernetes, bro. <laughs> right? And Kubernetes is the one that doesn't have the breakpointing debugger. So what we've done is move the integration pane into the place where we are actually least able to take care of it. That's how I would explain it to your younger self is there's a trade-off here. If you've got a large application, at least you can step through things. Now you've got tools there that will help you do that. And yeah, testing can be harder because setting up the fixtures for the testing is going to be more complicated and so forth. But that's what you're throwing away when you go to everything's just a little service that can be tested in isolation and then redeployed. All right, where do we want to be? And this brings us back to the idea that what we're doing is not software engineering, it's software industrial design. We're talking about, can I repair this chair, right? I don't know if you know this, but IKEA has teams of people whose job it is to break furniture. Huh. Okay. I did not know that. Okay. So what happens is let's go and break this. Let's knock it over. Let's you know throw it off the back of a truck. Let's simulate things and then see how hard it is to repair. Because if it's hard to assemble or it's hard to repair, it's badly designed. And we're seeing all of this come back now with things like automobiles and the right to repair movement or people who are dealing with medical equipment that gets bricked because somebody goes out of business. Now you can't get a software upgrade and the license says you're not allowed to try to fix it yourself. I'm a 
big proponent of right to repair legislation because I don't think John Deere should be able to hold 100,000 farmers hostage. So think about that from a software point of view. If I take a look at something like Elm, and I, the largest thing I ever built in Elm was probably five or six pages long, so tiny program. I could figure out where my problem was much more easily than I could if I was using React and Redux, with why I shifted. Now, that doesn't mean I could fix it faster. I don't think it's fair to talk about learning times because I'd already done functional programming before I hit Elm. But in terms of can I localize the fault, anybody who's done a, a house reno or had to fix a plumbing problem understands that at least three quarters of the difficulty is where is the leak? <laughs> yeah. Which of these fuses in this fuse box controls that outlet on the third floor is something that takes half an hour. Right, Replacing right. the fuse takes 30 seconds. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So do languages like Elm and Rock help with fault localization and maintenance compared to languages that emphasize mutable state? I don't know, but it's an interesting question. And it's the sort of question that I think our entire profession should ask reflexively. So the answer in the large tier question is... Somebody who had thought about this and compiled this should have come to you and said, when you were learning to program, let's spend a semester looking at existing programs and reading them and taking them apart and fixing them and extending them rather than writing code from scratch. The only place where most undergraduates get that experience today is in an operating systems course where they're handed some small toy OS and they're asked to make extensions. But what they're really learning is how to find their way around a non-trivial code base. And that's the thing that 20 years on is still missing from almost all undergraduate programs is not the history of computing, which I think is interesting, but perhaps not essential. But how do you analyze a program. And if you think about a degree in something like English literature, 90% of it is how do you take something apart and figure out how is character development working? How are they using metaphor? Because that's the only way to train people to do it themselves. I can't teach you how to write a good story. I can teach you how to critique stories and figure out how those parts work so that you've got a mental toolbox to apply to whatever you're trying to write. Yeah. That's really interesting. This reminds me of something that a friend of mine told me about his experience learning Elm for the first time, which was that we were coworkers and had a huge Elm code base, several hundred thousand lines of Elm code. And the way that he learned Elm was just, he ran into something where he needed to make some change to the front end for the first time. He'd primarily been back end up to that point. And somebody kind of walked him through like, okay, here's, you know, here's how to, the part of the code base, et cetera. And so he learned Elm in the context of this gigantic code base. That was his first experience. He never did like a hello world. Fast forward a little bit. And he was at a, an Elm meetup teaching some beginners Elm for the first time. And at some point he realized, he's like, this is a lot easier to teach in a giant code base than in a small code base. And he said, the reason is because when you're in a small code base, I'm always making all these weird apologies. Like, well, I know this feels weird, but trust me, it's going to be useful later. Whereas in the huge code base, you're like, 
this is great. You don't need to sell me on this because I am so shocked at how easy it is to figure out what's going on in this gigantic code base that I've never looked at before because of all the, the way things are structured and these guarantees. It's like everything breaks down into these really small, easy to understand pieces in a way that it just fundamentally does not in like an object oriented code base, for example. And that motivation piece means that anything that seems weird, you're just like, that's fine. I get it. Like, it's, I, I, I understand why it's weird. This is worth it. I think that works with people who've already programmed. Sure. Right. And have enough of a mental model. And this brings us to one of the other mistakes that so many people teaching programming make. I don't know if you have kids. I have one. Okay. How old? 16 months. <laughs> okay. So in a couple of years, you might buy them or inherit from a neighbor something that here in Canada, we would call a balance bike. Right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Little two wheel thing, but there's no pedals. Children are learning how to ride bicycles almost a year younger than they used to because of this toy. Because what it does is let you learn balance and steering and master those. And then you can add the pedaling later, right? Yeah. Separation of concerns, build up some skill here and then add to it. Whereas the bicycle that I learned on, I had to learn it all at once. Yeah, me okay? too. So scratch is a balance bike. Scratch is something that you use to master a certain set of concepts, and then you move on. The problem is that as professional programmers, we tend to look down on the balance bikes of programming. We sneer at them because they're not the real thing. Well, I ride a, you know, a 15-speed two-wheeler, and every once in a while, one of my friends gives me a side eye because he's got a reclining bike that'll do 40 miles an hour on the flat if he really pushes it. He <laughs> wonders why I'm not riding a real bike because, you know, the upright bikes that you and I have, yeah, 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 those are 50 years out of date, man. We've got these things, right? And I've tried it once and I fell down and, you know, skinned both of my elbows and it's like, this is not worth it. But please don't tell me that my upright bike is somehow inadequate. Yeah. Please don't tell me that my ball and stick mental model of chemistry is somehow inadequate. It's good for my stage of development and my purposes. And as programmers, we keep shooting ourselves in the foot. Python used to be a really good teaching language. I no longer like teaching novices Python. Really? What happened? Because as soon as you go online with a question you're thrown into a world of async await and type hints and all of these things that were added so that it could be used for industrial scale problems are confusing weirdness for people who are trying to figure out what a for loop is. Right. We're trying to get one hammer that can be used both to drive a nail into some drywall so you're getting a picture and to knock down a skyscraper. Well, Newsflash, those are meant to be different tools, but we as programmers won't accept that often. And one of the things I think that Elm did really, really well was say, here's all the things we're not going to do. Yeah. We do this and we don't do the rest of it. Erlang, I think, has survived because it was similarly self conscious about the problem domain that it was a good tool for. I wouldn't do data science in Erlang. I mean, I'm sure you could. It's a Turing-complete language, but it's not what it's for. And one of the languages I admire most is Lua, because Roberto said, it came out almost exactly the same time as Python, but Roberto said, 
this is a language for embedding in other systems so you've got a bit of scriptability. So we are going to keep it small. I used to know this. It's added maybe 10 syntactic features in 30 years. These days, Python's adding eight or 10 syntactic features every three releases, <laughs> right? And yeah. I no longer understand Python. I'm a member of the Python Software Foundation. I'm the guy who wrote the pep that got sets added to Python 20 years ago. I don't understand the language any longer. I'm sure I could if I forced myself, but it's grown too much. And I have similar feelings these days about Haskell. It's gotten too big to fit in my head unless I actually go to the gym and work out. And I just don't want to work that hard. Right? Well, Haskell's an interesting example of, uh, you mentioned, you know, Python wanting to be simultaneously something that's widely used in industry and also something that's really good for beginners and there being a sort of innate tension there. Haskell, I would say, has the same thing going on, but rather than trying to be good for beginners, which as far as I know, has never really been a goal of Haskell. But of course, the original goal of Haskell was to do research. And Haskell has become more widely used in industry, obviously not to the extent Python has, but but that split focus between research and industry, I think has made it less good at both of those things. Granted, there's probably some amount of like feedback loop that's also positive there, that which counterbalances that to some extent. But I think it would be better for Haskell if, just to pick an example of a language I think would be a sensible successor in terms of the industry focus, I think if PureScript were more widely used, that would be better for Haskell as a research language, because then you could say, well, if you want a Haskell-like experience, that's arguably PureScript goes further in a number of ways than Haskell does along the same kind of axes, look at PureScript, go use PureScript. And then if you want to do research, here's the language with a million language extensions, because you know different papers want to use different combinations of language features. <laughs> Whereas you don't want a bunch of different <laughs> configurable language features like that if you're using an industry. It's a big pain point for Haskell and industry. Okay. Now let's come back to microservices. When I teach web development, I teach with JavaScript on the front end and Node on the back end so that people only have to worry about one language at a time. Compare that with typical stack these days would be JavaScript on the front end and Python on the back end. I think that the two components are better suited. I think Python's a better server-side language than JavaScript slash Node. But I also recognize you're paying a cost because now you've got to master two languages in order to work both sides of the problem or debug both sides of the problem. Okay, so let's come back to microservices. What we've done is move the pain around. I've gotten rid of the pain of having two languages. I brought on the pain of having to do some things with the file system in Node that feel unnatural. Like it shouldn't be that hard. We're, we're taking something that was thrown together in a hurry to deal with async browser events and saying, okay, that's how you're going to interact with the file system. And I don't think anybody would argue that it was a good fit. It was just the best possible given decisions that have been made earlier, right? What I want is all of the books and talks and arguments that people like you would have about those trade-offs grounded in those examples. So I talked earlier about beautiful code. As a follow-on a few years later, we did a couple of books called The Architecture of Open Source Applications. Went out and got the creators of 50 different open source applications to do a chapter each on what's the architecture and why. So as far as I know, it's the only written description of the architecture of the Bash shell. Huh. Right? Cool. I mean, there's lots of documentation on Bash, but if you want an overview of how is it built, turns out you can't parse Bash without running it. 
Really? Because there are self-modifying commands. Yep. (laughs) It's a really good overview of send mail, which is still the backbone of how do we get email from one place to another, right? It was the first popular description of LLVM back when Lantern was still a grad student. And one of the things I found really interesting about that project was that more than half of the authors, without any prompting from me, explained the architecture by recapitulating the history. The only way to understand how it works today is what architects in the building sense call challenge and response. We had this problem, so we did this thing. But it introduced this other problem, or it opened up this other opportunity, or some new material or technique became available. So then we did this thing. So the only way to understand, for example, the abstract syntax trees, the internal representation that LLVM uses, is to go back 15 years and see the problems that Lautner was trying to solve, and then the other problems people threw, and this constant tension between, do I add it, do I refactor so that it's easier to add, or do I throw away what I've got because I now realize there's a generalization here. Interesting, right? yeah. That's a great way to teach software architecture. And the downside of those two books was that they weren't accessible to undergrads, not because of the application type, but because pretty much every chapter was using a, either a different language or a different tech stack because I'm using existing applications, right? Sure, yeah. So if you think about the breadth of things you need to know before you can understand why, for example, you want to design a C++ application so that you can cache header file inclusions because otherwise compilation oh. takes 36 hours. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. You have to, right? You go back to the Lakish book on large-scale C++ from 2001, I think, and it's basically... Your compiler is slow because you're constantly recompiling header files, particularly with templated code. So your design is influenced by how are you actually going to manufacture the executable. Here's what we do. Right. Right? Okay. You think about how much an undergrad needs to know before they can even join that conversation. Right? Yeah. Okay. So there was a lot of material there, and that website still gets 600 to 1,500 distinct visitors a day. It's now a decade old. And I think occasionally about going back and recruiting another bunch of contributors and doing another volume. But then I think, okay, is that the best approach for the audience I want? So last year and this year, I did a pair of books called Software Design by Example, which is actually why I reached out to you a few weeks ago. What I do in those two books is take a look at the tools that programmers actually use themselves, like version control, linting tools, things like that. And I go through and I build scale models of each. Here is a linting tool for JavaScript written in JavaScript, and it's 120 lines long, so that I can explain to you how real linters work and talk about the design of a linting tool. What is it like when you want to be able to write declarative rules about the properties of your code and then have them executed by something that's walking a tree? Okay, let's unpack that. There's one example, right? So. What I would like to see is, I don't know, a third-year undergrad course at college or university that says, all right, now you've learned enough about programming, you've wrestled with Git, you've used the Unix shell, you've done a database course, things like that. Let's start to take apart applications that I know you're familiar with and look at how they're designed to give you a vocabulary for talking about larger scale design. And I did it in JavaScript. I did it in Python. Those two are actually pretty similar. My interest in Rock is twofold. 
first, what would it look like to redo all of those examples in a pure functional language? How does that change the design? I want the same functionality, but I'm not allowed to have the mutable state. I'm relying on typing rather than on objects and inheritance. What does that do to how I organize the code? Does it change the algorithms I use? Maybe, but that's not really my concern here. The other thing is, all right, now if we've got a canonical set of examples like this, can they be used to help identify places where Rock is either missing things or is harder to use than it should be? Because my experience with both Haskell and ML back in the 90s was that the people building them picked examples that the languages were designed for. So you get this kind of closed universe phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like, how many people have written parsers in Haskell? A disproportionately large, yeah. Right. But then you say, okay, what happens if we try to implement DNS in Haskell? Okay, that throws me out of my comfort zone as a language designer, and now I've got another set of problems that I have to think about. Some of them are purely implementation, but a lot of them are going to make me rethink the design of my language because it was harder than it should be to express something that I know is simple in some other language. So what am I missing? Yeah. And this has already happened a number of times in Rock where we, we've run into something that somebody wanted to build that we just hadn't either hadn't thought about or hadn't realized that if you actually sat down and started to write the code, you would run into something that just, you know, hadn't been thought of. So that excites me too. It's like, what happens if we throw a bunch of, a wide variety of use cases at the language? What do we learn? Yep. And the big weakness in the examples I've got so far is that with only a couple of minor exemptions, they are all sequential because I realized as I was working on it that the design of concurrent systems is hairy enough that it deserves an entire volume and it has to be a second volume. Because if you don't understand the things that you can do with classic Unix command line tools, which are pretty much sequential, you're not ready to start tackling partial failure, rollback, transactions, you know, everything that happens in today's real software systems, right? I don't think I knew enough about design to be able to know which design principles I wanted to boil down into little examples. Twice in my life worked with systems that were built on message queues. I'm not nearly experienced enough to say, here's how to build a baby message queue, right? Makes sense. That's really cool. And by the way, if anyone listening is interested in participating in a hypothetical future book like that, where you uh, take examples from Greg or from whatever sources and implement them in Rock and see how it goes, let me know. So here's my offer. I have a publisher who will publish it. You can have your name in an actual published book from a reputable publisher. I will do the editing and I promise up front, I will take care of the LaTeX. And if you've, <laughs> never, if you've never had to deal with traditional publishers and their LaTeX templates, you probably don't realize how big a sacrifice that is. But I'm willing to make it in order to see this in print because we need this. And so this is a book where you intend to have a lot of authors. So anybody who wants to do a chapter on whatever example implements you get in Rock and seeing how it goes, that would be one of quite a few authors who have done the same thing on their own one or two chapters. Yep. And that has a couple of benefits. One of them is peer review. Like, you know the benefits of getting code review and design review 
from other people who are familiar with the domain, familiar with the capabilities of the tool. So fine, I'm asking people to write maybe a couple hundred lines of code, and you don't even have to write the chapter. If you can do the slides, I can translate it into prose. Like if you can do the 50-minute conference talk where you walk people through the design of a message queue in Rock, I can turn that into English. I can do the diagrams. It's not my happy <laughs> place, but I'm not capable of looking at it and saying, actually, this is a good design or not. But there will be other people contributing chapters who will be able to look at it in the way that you would look at theirs and go, wait a second, wait a second, you've gone down a rabbit hole here. What about this? What about that? And one of the things I would want to do is capture some of that discussion and put it into the book because one of the best ways to teach is to have people who know what they're doing up on stage arguing with each other, not about principles, because anybody can have whatever principles they want. Argue about the specifics. Watching a couple of really good designers argue about how to reno a building to make it accessible to somebody who is has been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and is now using canes, but in three or four years is going to have a wheelchair, but they've got 15 years, maybe 20 years in front of them, right? What are the refits? In what order? You're balancing off cost with accessibility, with aesthetics, with the disruption in their life while they're going through something difficult. Watching a couple or three people up there with floor plans and a whiteboard arguing through that is an amazing experience. And we don't do that in our profession. We talk about principles and everybody's like, yeah, okay, so does that mean I should use Haza or Iza here? <laughs> right, right, right. right. It's, it's that gap that I want to close. And I'm really excited to, to be a part of that. I would love to see this book exist. And I, I, <laughs> I was talking to my wife about this. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to, even though I'm trying not to commit to this, I'm probably going to end up writing a chapter or two myself just because I'll, like, I'll see one of these problems. I'm like, oh, I really want to do that one, even though I've got enough stuff on my plate. But anyway, yeah, it's a really cool project. And I'm, I'm really excited about it. If anybody's interested out there, uh, let me know. I also think that this is essential to a new language breaking in at this point is having like a, a set of examples of different things like that? Because you're not going to win on syntax. It's a language. I, yeah. Does anyone win on syntax? I, I think I feel well, like Python, did. Python absolutely did in the teaching space because the alternative at the time was Java, right? Fair. And Python was just, there was less you had to explain away with public static void main, just wasn't a problem. All the, you know, load these five libraries just wasn't a problem. You could just use it and get past that crucial first hurdle. I don't know what the numbers are now, but 25 years ago, somewhere between a quarter and a third of students enrolled in their first programming class would drop after two or three weeks. Wow. Because it's just like, I have no idea what's going on. This is just too weird, right? Yeah. It disproportionately affected underrepresented groups in computing, which is one of the reasons why they're underrepresented. Didn't know that. Wow. So exacerbated that problem. I have no idea what impact large language models are going to have on programming. I do know from a few experiences with John Udell that it's going to be at least as profound as SourceForge and Stack Overflow. That's a good, uh, I like that. All of a sudden, you're going to have at your fingertips all of the knowledge that every programmer has ever put out in public 
And it's not going to be as snarky as the people who reply on (laughs) But again, this drives a lot of people away. You and I are pretty thick-skinned. There's a lot of people who just don't participate because they've got to wade through that. And I had an experience like that this morning. I don't know what impact this has. I do know that we need a better understanding of design rather than syntax because ChatGPT is always going to spit out legal syntax. It's just going to be doing the wrong thing. That is generally the problem, yeah. Yeah. And so we need to get better at reading code and understanding what design is embodied in it. We need to get better at thinking about the ways in which code is manufactured rather than just does it look pretty on the page, right? And I come back to what I said at the start, that industrial design is a discipline that I think a lot of programmers have respect for. We're all about the toys. Like I know a good keyboard from a bad keyboard. Your listeners can't see this, but I've got a brace on my left wrist and I'm supposed to be wearing one on my right because of bad keyboards. So I think there's a shift there that would be rewarding and fun. And software design, by example, in rock or design of concurrent software, whatever it winds up being called, is an interesting and I hope fun way to go and play around with that and see if there's anything there. Because I've been wrong way more often than I've been right. Same here. (laughs) I was in a meeting once with somebody who knew me well who said, let's hear what Greg thinks so we can rule that out. (laughs) And he meant it kindly. (laughs) The architecture of open source applications is still being read by hundreds of people every single day because nobody else has got something like it. And I think there's a lot of hunger out there. People who want to be better at their craft and realize that doesn't mean learning the syntax of partition windowing functions in Postgres. It means thinking about when is that the right tool to use. That's my pitch. Yeah, I think it's a cool pitch and I'm excited to see what comes out of it. I think it'll be valuable for Rock too. So Greg, thanks so much for the conversation and for the the offer. And again, if anyone's interested in participating in that, hit me up. And anything else we should chat about before we wrap up? I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up. I need to run out for a couple of minutes and then hop on my next call because welcome to home office. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Talk to you soon.